Good morning, everyone. It's so good to have you each here in the house of the Lord. We're continuing in our series on experiencing God that goes along with the discipleship material we're working through. Uh, let me continue to encourage you. I know that it requires some effort uh, to take, set aside time five days a week uh, to go through the discipleship material, but I hope you also are realizing that when we take the time to read scripture and to pray and to focus on God, that we find God is eager to meet us. Uh, so certainly it's not time wasted. I, I want to encourage you uh, to not let things sidetrack you, but, but uh, keep working on this and keep doing it uh, as we're all seeking God together through this discipleship material. I don't know how many of you follow the news uh, but you might know that this past week, President Biden delivered his second State of the Union address, uh, a statement of intent that many view as preparation uh, to announce his uh, bid to run for re-election next year. And it's useful to hear what people in powerful positions are planning to understand what their values are, their motivations, because it helps us anticipate what may lie ahead for us as a nation. So if this is true when it comes to powerful human beings, how, uh, how important is it to pay attention when God communicates something? If uh, what human beings are up to might impact our lives in a significant way, how much more so when God Almighty lets us know what he's up to? We've been considering the past two weeks... Uh, uh, or actually, this is the second week, uh, we've been considering the implications of the fact that God speaks, God communicates to us. Let's see today what Jesus had to say about this. So we're, I've titled the message, God Speaks, and we're in the second part. We talked about God Speaks last week as well, but let's see what Jesus had to say about it in John chapter 5, verse 19. And before we jump into the verse... And hopefully it, it sounds familiar to you because it's the memory verse for the week. Uh, but before we jump into it, let me back up a little and explain what's going on before Jesus says these words. In chapter 5 of John, uh, Jesus is at the pool of Bethesda and he finds a man there who is sick or has an infirmity. He has been paralyzed for 38 years. And Jesus talks to this man and he asks him, do you want to be well? Do you want to be healed? And the man proceeds to explain to him why that is impossible. You see, he's at this pool because supposedly this pool has healing properties. And the idea is that an angel stirs the water. And when you see the water being stirred, uh, then you know that it's the moment to get into the pool. And the first person to get into the pool will be healed of their infirmity or illness. And of course, given the nature of his particular problem, he doesn't have the mobility to be the first one to make it into the pool. Somebody else always gets there ahead of him so he says you know I've I've given up it's just not going to happen I can't be healed even though this man expressed no faith at all no confidence that Jesus could do anything for him Jesus healed him anyway he said get up grab your cot go home and boom just like that uh, the the miraculous healing is 
astounding. You, anybody who knows anything about how uh, recovery from uh, damage to your spinal column works, uh, we haven't really figured out how to fix that. If your column, spinal column is severed, we, we don't know how to weave that back together. But even if we did, we know that 38 years of not using your legs means it's going to take a lot, I mean a lot, of physical therapy before you're going to ever even think of walking again. And yet, right then, that very moment, boom, he is able to stand on his own two legs, grab his cot, and go home. An incredible uh, miracle of healing. And of course, this guy is going along, and it's at this point in the narrative that John throws in this little tidbit. Oh, by the way, Jesus did this on a Sabbath. And if you were a first century Jew, then automatically you would say, oh, wait a minute. He just told him to carry his cot. Jesus healed a guy on the day you're not supposed to do that kind of thing. <clears throat> and that's exactly what happens. This guy's carrying his cot home when he runs across some Jewish religious authority of some sort. And they see him and they say, wait a minute, guy, you know you're not allowed to do that. You see, the religious leaders in Jesus' day had devoted a lot of time and effort to interpreting the laws of God. And they had laid out for all the Jewish people, this is how you follow the commandments of God. And if the Sabbath is God's holy day and God says, this day I do not want you to work, uh, then they had interpreted very clearly what all that meant. And the rabbis said, uh, you do not heal unless somebody's life is in danger. Uh, you do not heal and, and do physician type work on the Sabbath wait till Monday or, I'm sorry wait till Sunday to get that taken care of uh, and you definitely don't carry an object from one domain to another you can maybe move something within the house but you don't take it from one place and move it to another place they had very carefully determined all these things so on two counts Jesus has done two things that they uh, had told people God does not allow they had set themselves up as spokespersons for God and arbiters of how we should understand God's commandments. So they find this man and say, you're, do you're not supposed to do that. And this man, all he can say in his defense is, the guy that healed me told me to. So the next question is, so who did this? And he says, I have no idea. I didn't ask his name. Jesus finds him later and says, see, you're healed. So sin no more that something worse may not happen to you. Which seems to indicate that somehow he had uh, damaged himself doing something he shouldn't have been doing. We can imagine a whole series of illegal or immoral activities you could be involved in that could lead you to harming yourself in the way that you ended up uh, being paralyzed but apparently his paralysis had some direct connection to him doing something he shouldn't be doing and Jesus says I have given you a second chance don't squander it move your heart and life in a different direction what does the guy do he runs right back to the Jewish authorities and gives them a detailed report this is the guy who told me to do the stuff you said he shouldn't have been telling me to do so they confront Jesus about it. 
Jesus, what are you doing breaking the commandments? And why are you healing somebody on the Sabbath and telling him to carry his cot home? Of course, that might have been his only earthly possession. And Jesus didn't tell him, leave it here. But you broke the rules. Jesus' answer was, my father is working to this day. And I'm working. So we're told in John, this is the moment that the religious leaders decided we need to kill Jesus. Because not only is he teaching people to disobey our instructions, and he's disregarding our rabbinic tradition the way we have handed it down and instructed other people to interpret and follow scripture, not only is he challenging that, but when he says God is Father and I am the Son, he is making himself equal to God. They were understanding exactly what Jesus was saying. Jesus was not subtle about it. And they uh, had decided they need to kill him. This is the moment where we pick it up. This is the beginning of Jesus' response to all of this. This one verse opens up his discussion. And we're only going to consider the one verse. So let me start reading it. Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I tell you all, the Son is not able to do anything from himself. Oftentimes, Jesus, when he was going to say something he wanted people to really pay attention to, he would preface it by saying, truly, truly, I'm going to say something to you. That's kind of a way of saying what I am about to say is not only solidly true, but you need to pay attention to what I'm about to say. This is significant. It's important. It's, it's an, 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 uh, a Hebrew idiom. Literally, it's the word amen, which is uh, to say, so be it. And it's a way of expressing agreement that whatever it is that the other person has said. That's why when somebody prays, we all at the end say amen. We're agreeing with the prayer. So be it. So it was kind of an idiom to say uh, that this is the God's honest, solid truth. Amen, amen. Truly, truly, I tell you. And what does he begin saying here? The Son, and he's talking about himself, and he's referring to himself as the Son in relation to God the Father. The Son is not able to do anything from himself. And no doubt his disciples probably, and certainly the, the people he was talking with at this moment, were a little surprised to hear Jesus say that. For some time now, Jesus has been preaching publicly. And he has proven to be a very effective communicator. We're told in the Gospels that when people listened to Jesus, they marveled. <coughs> this man speaks with authority. We have never heard anyone speak the way he speaks. When you want to talk about charisma and uh, the ability to coherently communicate a message to people, Jesus was a skilled speaker. He had the ability to convey his message in a powerful, impactful way. People said that. We've never heard anyone speak like this. And uh, he spoke with conviction and power. He was gifted in that way. But that's not all about Jesus. He also healed people who were sick. People who had infirmities of this or that kind, he healed them. And not only that, he did other miraculous things. He kicked off his public ministry by converting 12 ginormous uh, 
ritual water jars into wine. He would feed 5,000, a crowd of 5,000 with nothing but a, a, a few loaves and a couple of fish. He would do incredible, miraculous, amazing things. And even the enemies of Jesus, historical records they've left behind, people who did not believe in Jesus in terms of faith, admitted that Jesus was a miracle worker. He did the kinds of things people can't do. Not only that, but he demonstrated spiritual power. He confronted people who were oppressed by demonic powers. And uh, every time... It was the demonic powers who ended up being chased off. It was the demonic powers who were terrified of him. There was never an encounter where Jesus was incapable of overpowering even the strongest forces of evil he was confronted with. He was the most powerful exorcist the world had ever seen. For Jesus then to say, I cannot do anything from myself, probably was very surprising. What do you mean you can't do anything? Look at all you bring to the table, Jesus. You're the whole package. You're the prophet of prophets. You are the best at all of this. Look at all the skill you've got, all the ability you have, all the things you're doing. And yet Jesus says, I can't do anything from myself. Now, this points to the mystery of the incarnation. In one sense, we could say that's not really true. Jesus is God. He can do anything. And he, in and of himself, being God, has the power to do anything he wants to. But I do believe that in the years of his earthly life, Jesus willingly set aside his glory and power and all the prerogatives he had as God so that he could live a life as a truly human person. So that I think at any point he could have reclaimed that power. He had the authority to do that. But it was his choice to live a fully human life and live it just like you and I have to live it. If he wanted to know the Father's will, he had to ask. He had to pray the way you and I have to. He fully accepted those limitations upon himself, which means that what he's saying about himself applies to us as well. He is describing the essential reality of the creature. If you are created, then you don't have anything in and of yourself. What do I mean by that? When did you decide you wanted to be born? When did that thought cross your mind? What mind? You didn't have a mind. You weren't even here until God decided to say, boom, you're here. And the fact that you have a mind to even ponder these questions, did you make that up yourself? No, it was given to you by God. It is the essential nature of the creature that in and of ourselves we bring nothing to the table. Everything is given to us by the one who created us, by the one who put us here who designed us and fashioned us and placed us where we are. And every single thing in our hands is here because somebody put it there. If you think you're smart, thank God for giving you a brain that works well. You think you're strong, thank God for giving you a body that you can work and that works well. 
Jesus says the son is not able to do anything from himself. God designed us to need him. God did not create us as kind of these little independent entities to just float out into the universe and he would go off somewhere else to do something else. No, he designed us for intimacy with him and to depend on him. He designed the human creature in his own image and likeness and the intent was that we would share creation with God. And Jesus points that out even of himself. God himself come to us in the flesh. He's pointing out to us this is the nature of human existence. You were designed to need God. You may think you don't need God. You may think you have everything you need. And I'm happy for you that you have things you think you need. Uh, Thank God. Because he put them there. But those things are not really what you need. Even people in your life that are significant and meaningful, that doesn't meet the need uh, that's in the core of your soul as a human being. You were created to need God. And he goes on, the son is not able to do anything from himself unless he should see the father doing something. So he points out, if you would advance the slide, please. Thank you. He points out that uh, he has nothing to bring to the table in and of himself. The most powerful human being to ever walk this earth said that. Unless... He saw the Father doing something. Jesus loved to describe God as Father. It's the most significant theological, theologically important word in the Gospel of John. It occurs over a hundred times in reference to God. God is the perfect loving Father. I'm not talking about the kind of fathers we are here on earth. We're self-centered and oftentimes abusive and, and do things horribly wrong. But God is the perfect loving Father who cares for those he has given life to. Jesus says, the only way I can do anything significant is that first I have to see what the Father is doing. Jesus didn't plan his ministry. He didn't say, okay, well, this is my three-year plan of how I'm going to turn the world upside down and I'm going to prepare the disciples and I'm going to preach and I'm going to heal here and I'm going to do this there and this is my vision statement for the following five years, not five, maybe three. Uh, Let me plan out these three years exactly and then I'll go to the cross. Jesus The way he went about ministry is he watched to see what the Father was doing. Let me give you an example. We're told in Matthew 14, verses 13 through 21, that when Jesus heard of the death of John the Baptist, he took his closest disciples and went off somewhere uh, to a, a remote location. 
And we can understand that. John the Baptist was a close relative of his, possibly his cousin. Uh, he had begun his public ministry before Jesus, and his whole ministry was about preparing people and pointing them to Jesus. In fact, many of the uh, first disciples of Jesus began as disciples of John, and John passed them off to Jesus. And John had this wonderful, uh, efficient, and godly ministry. Jesus said that of all the prophets, that have ever graced this world, John was the, the greatest among them. He, he supported the ministry of Jesus. He led people to Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He must increase. I must decrease. And John's heart and ministry was a great support to what Jesus was doing. So it was in many, both on a personal level and on a ministerial level, it was a blow to know that Herod Antipas has had John beheaded. So Jesus feels like now, this moment, what I need is some alone time. I need to pray. I need to seek comfort and direction from the Father. Where do we go from here? I need to retreat. And that's what he did. But you know what happened? People heard he was going somewhere, and spontaneously, a crowd formed, and people, the word spread like wildfire, and all of a sudden, Jesus is out in the middle of nowhere, and looks up, and there are more than 5,000 people there. Jesus' plan was to go and be alone for a bit. That's what he felt he needed at that moment. Guess what the Father was doing? The Father was touching the hearts of over 5,000 people and drawing them to where Jesus was. When Jesus looked up, he abandoned his original plan immediately and said, okay, the Father has brought 5,000 plus here that need to hear a word. He has brought 5,000 plus people here that need, among them there are many who need healing. I'm going to heal. I'm going to teach. I am going to take five loaves of bread and two fish and I am going to miraculously multiply it so that they can all eat and fill their bellies and still have 12 baskets left of leftovers and then I'm going to teach them that I am the bread of life, that I am the true sustenance they need. Jesus did not plan this evangelistic campaign. The Father made it happen. And Jesus stopped what he was doing and joined the Father when he saw what the Father was doing. That's what he's saying. I can't do anything. I didn't plan this, bring 5,000 plus. I didn't send flyers out and spread the word and say we're having a grand campaign. Be sure you don't miss it. And no, that's not at all how it happened. Jesus did nothing but pay attention to what the Father was doing. Here's the good news. That the Father wants us to see what He's up to. He doesn't need us. He's God Almighty. He can do everything He wants to do without including us at all. He does not need us to do anything. And yet He designed us because he wanted us to not only know what he's doing but be a part of it. 
God is not hiding from us. He's not hidden away, sequestered somewhere. He's not up there behind the curtain doing all this Machiavellian manipulation. God is openly saying, come and see what I'm up to. I want you to see it. I want you to perceive and understand what I am doing in the world. And God is constantly working in the world around us. So why don't we see it? Because we're not looking. We're too busy navel-gazing. We're too busy pondering the musings of our own hearts. We're too busy grooming our own plan for me. And when all I have is eyes for myself and the most treasured possession in my life is the mirror, I don't see what God's up to. I'm not watching. It's not that God's hiding from me. It's that I don't care. It's that I'm not paying attention at all. I've got my own plans I'm pursuing. I've got my own things I'm doing. And I don't care to watch what God's up to. I'm happy to tell God, this is what I'm doing. Come bless it. This is the career I'm pursuing. God bless me. I have no interest in paying attention to what God is actually up to. Don't get offended. I want you to ponder for a moment the tremendous, loving generosity of God in saying, I want you to see what I'm up to. We have no right to expect Him to include us. We've done nothing to commend ourselves to Him. We have given him nothing he needed from us. And yet, he lovingly opens his heart and says, I want you to see my heart. I want you to see what I'm doing. Look, I'm at work. I am touching people's lives and hearts, and I am at work among you. Open your eyes. One of the things that grieves God, and we find it through the whole Bible, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, over and over again, the lament of God. I have given you eyes, but you will not see. It's not that we're blind. It's that we don't want to see. And we miss what God's doing because we're too busy with ourselves to pay attention. But there's a tremendous loving... Uh, generosity of God in saying come see what I'm up to I am in the process of transforming the whole creation I am transforming from shame to glory from death to life from broken to whole I am doing this on an eternal scale and I'm doing it right now all around you. Open your eyes and look to see what I'm up to. We were designed to look to God. Finally, he wraps it up. For whatever things he might do, he's talking about the Father, these things the Son is also likewise doing. 
So here's the powerful activity of Christ. I described some of the things in his ministry. All that stuff that was happening, the powerful preaching, the healing, the uh, in confronting the forces of evil and doing all these things, all of that was just Jesus watching what the Father was up to and saying, I'm here. Let me in. Make me a part of it. That's exactly how God designed us to function. He designed us to need Him, to look to Him, and when we see what He's doing, to step in and say, God, take me along. Let me join you in the things you are doing. Let me be a part of what you're up to. God did not design us to be insignificant. He did not design our lives to be just this little blip. And you may think, you don't need God. I'm smart, I'm powerful, I'm really clever, and I've got all these things going on, and everybody's really excited about what I'm doing, and I'm powerful, and I don't need God. I've got it all figured out. Tell me how powerful you are when you're six feet underground. Tell me how powerful you are when you're a pile of ashes in a jar on a mantle somewhere. Because that's where we're all headed. We have this delusion that we can do all this and we don't need God at all. You want to be part of something really significant, something eternal? Then watch what the eternal God is doing. And be a part of that. See what he's up to and join him. I'm not saying don't uh, strive for things and don't work for things, you know. Don't get a college degree. Don't study. Don't get certifications. Those kind of, Do all of that. But in terms of the purpose for which you are living, you know, you, that is not the purpose. That degree you're pursuing is not the reason you're on this earth. Don't let that be the singular focus of your heart and life. Keep your eyes open. And look to see what the Father is doing. And decide that the way you're going to invest your life is I'm going to step in to whatever I see God doing and join him. That means that you might have plans laid out and they may even be plans for things that have to do with the work of God. Plans you feel God put on your heart to do work that God called you to do. Just like Jesus was doing in his own ministry. That's fine. Pursue all of that. But the moment you notice God is moving over here, not here, you abandon that. You do like the Apostle Paul who had his heart set on going to Ephesus, but God did not let him. And the minute he had the vision of the Macedonian man saying, we need you, he didn't waste a minute. The next morning he was on his way. Do your life that way. Arrange your plans dynamically around what God is up to. If we do that as a church, God's going to blow the lid off of things. God's going to work, and he's already working. The problem, if we're not seeing him work, is because, not that God's not working, it's that we're not paying attention, and that's why we are missing out. But if we want to be a part of it, we need to reorient our whole heart 
to God. See what he's up to. And commit ourselves to join him, no matter how inconvenient that might be to our personal plans. Be ready to abandon them at the drop of a hat. We need God. We may try to pretend we we don't, that we have everything we need already. We can live just fine. We don't need anything or anyone. The truth is, we can't do a single thing on our own. We depend on God completely for everything, and that's true whether or not we acknowledge it. Just like you don't have to believe in gravity for it to still work the way it does. It's going to happen either way. Our lives are never going to amount to anything unless we admit our own powerlessness. Unless we look up to God for him to reveal to us what he is doing. And make all the necessary adjustments in our own lives to join him in what he is doing. I want to challenge you this morning to live your life the way Jesus modeled for us. To live your life in deliberate watching to see what God is up to. And committing yourself to join in wherever you see God doing. Understanding that that is the whole reason for your existence and that is your only chance at having any impact of significance in this life and this world. I want to challenge you to live your life that way. We're going to have a time of response. I believe the Word of God is not uh, simply the sharing of information, but it is always a challenge and an invitation, and we are meant to respond to God's Word. So we do have a time of invitation at the end of the sermon. This is your time. If God is calling you and talking to you in your heart and saying, I'm talking to you this morning. I want you to come and I want you to surrender your life to me and I want you to commit to watch and follow where I lead you. To join me in what I am up to. If that's you this morning, come forward during this time. There will be people here at the front ready to take your hand and pray with you. Let's all stand. Come while we sing.